0: Good morning. morning. Hope you guys are doing well. We are missing a bunch of people this morning, aren't we? Got a young people's retreat and a teen gathering off somewhere. But Bob don't need no pitch pipe. (laughs) You did fine, brother. Even with a scratchy throat, did fine. I didn't realize until today... That the two sermon titles might sound a little funny together. This morning we're talking about God's relationship with Israel. Of course the name Israel means he who wrestles with God. And tonight's lesson is rules for fair fighting. And they're, they're not related at all. Uh, the, the rules for fair fighting is about uh, relationships that we have with each other. But anyway want to talk about this topic this morning. How, we, how are Christians to regard Israel today? Because Israel is in the news a lot. And of course folks are hot and heavy into all of this is Bible prophecy. Come to life before our eyes. It's Bible prophecy in the news. And I beg to differ about that. So let's talk about Israel and what our relationship with Israel should be as Christians. I've got four preliminary statements I want to make. <coughs> i got that thing right there. It doesn't matter if I step back, does it? I do that all the time. These four preliminary statements, I'll give them to you at first, and we'll spend some time on these, but I want to go through them quickly because, well, these are four preliminary statements. First of all, there's no special salvation for the people of Israel outside of Jesus Christ. If anybody's going to be saved, it's going to be through Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what nation you are from. And if you are an Israelite, Jesus is your only hope, just like the rest of us. Christianity is not a means to salvation alongside of or equivalent to Judaism, but wholly supersedes Judaism. When Christ established the church, that church became the only means for salvation to the world. Neither Jesus nor the apostles taught us to watch Israel to determine end times, though there were to be signs before the end of the temple and the legitimate practice of Judaism. So when we're going to look at Matthew 24 in a little bit, and this was uh, not given to us so that we would, no, to watch Israel to see when the end would come. As a matter of fact, Jesus says he doesn't even know when the end's coming. But he did give us signs as to the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of Judaism. The end of Judaism was a big deal in the mind of God and he shows us that very clearly. There is no statement in the New Testament that I know of anyway, specifically designed to instruct Christians exactly how to regard the nation of Israel. We are sort of left to ourselves. There are some passages ...that touch on this, and we'll look at some of those today. But there's no specific text you can go to and says, if you're a Christian, this is how you should see Israel. We just have to figure it out. But what's the first commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and body. And the second's likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. Does that include Israelites? Of course it does. Of course it does, just like everyone else. So let's talk about these individually, a little more specifically. There's no special salvation for the people of Israel outside of Jesus Christ... There are several texts we could look at, but let's look first at John chapter 1 and verse 12. And really, there's, there's three verses there that I will read. This is John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. John the Apostle writes this as he begins his gospel. came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So John is saying very specifically, the only way that anybody could hope to even have the right to become a child of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it all comes down to. Acts chapter four, verse 12, Peter's talking about Jesus and he says, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Peter is saying that Jesus is the only hope. It doesn't matter What else you might practice? Jesus is it. Several other passages, this is what the whole of the New Testament is about. Jesus is Lord and Savior, and every passage in the New Testament is toward that end. Hopefully, those will be enough to suffice to to prove that one point. Christianity is not a means to salvation alongside of or equivalent to Judaism, but it wholly supersedes Judaism. This was God's intention all along. In Jeremiah chapter 31... Jeremiah says this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So hundreds of years before Jesus is born, God's prophet Jeremiah says, the days are coming when I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband of them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them and on their heart. And I'll write it. It'll be, I'll be their God. They shall be my people. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. This is God through, uh, through Jeremiah saying he is going to bring about a new covenant. When you read in Hebrews... The Hebrew writer quotes this text and makes great use of it, showing that this was the intention of God all along. Hebrews chapter 10, if you want to look at that passage with me, this is a very uh, clear text, I think, and would be to anyone who grew up as a practicing Jew. It says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. Now let me stop right there. Judaism who went into the holy place the most holy place that is the high priest would go how often could he go one day out of the year he was able to go into the holy of holies and he went in there three times first he went in there to take the incense second time he went in there to take blood to atone for his own sins and after he atoned for his own sins he would take blood to atone for the sins of the people one day of the year that day is called Yom Kippur the day of atonement Hebrews is telling us we have what? We have confidence, confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus through the veil. You know what the veil was? That's what was torn from top to bottom when Christ was crucified. The veil of the temple was torn on that day at that moment in time. That veil separated the holy of holies from the rest of the world. And God tore it in two when his son died. And that's what the Hebrew writer is talking about. This veil, that veil is his flesh. God gave his son as a sacrifice so that we might come before his presence. And so there is no practicing of Judaism any longer. It is all Christ. Galatians chapter 5. Paul is writing to the churches of Galatia. And one of the problems they're having in Galatia is that Judaizing teachers are coming and teaching people, you've got to keep the law too. And he says, no, you go back to the law... You take circumcision as part of what you need to practice. You, you, you bind that on people. You are fallen from grace. He makes it very clear. You go back to the law, you're fallen from grace. It's Jesus Christ or it's nothing. And several other passages, especially in the letter to the Hebrews, teaches us that the old covenant is gone. The new covenant, the New Testament church. Is all there is that's left. Neither Jesus nor the apostles taught us to watch Israel to determine end times, so though there were to be signs before the end of the temple and the legitimate practice of Judaism. Now let's look at some of those from Matthew 24. Jesus provides signs for Jerusalem's destruction. This is all about Jerusalem's destruction and what he says here. Many will claim to be Christ. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, there'll be famines and earthquakes. And by the way, you look at these and in the world there are still people who claim to be Christ and there are still wars and rumors of wars. There are still earthquakes and famines and and there are folks who every time one of those things happens, they say, oh look, it's Bible prophecy come to life. Jesus was very specific here and we'll see that he puts a time frame on this in, in just a little bit that is unmistakable. It's going to be persecution of the disciples, people who believe in Jesus. There's going to be false prophets arising. There's going to be lawlessness. Hearts of many will grow cold, he says. And the gospel is going to be preached to the world before the end comes. And this, if you look at Colossians chapter 1, it's interesting to me how this works out. Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70. Well, in the 60s, Paul writes this letter to the church at Colossae. And this is what he says twice in this brief letter. Colossians chapter 1 in verse, let's start at verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world. Paul is affirming here in the sixth verse of this letter to the church at Colossae, what we call the sixth verse, he didn't have it divided into verses, but we do now. The sixth verse tells us that the gospel has gone into all the world. And Jesus is saying in Matthew 24, before the end comes, the gospel's going to go out to all the world. But in chapter 1 again, in chapter 23, or chapter 1 and verse verse 23, Paul writes this If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So if there's any doubt. That the gospel went out to the whole world as far as God is concerned, he inspired his apostle Paul to write this twice in the letter to the church at Colossae. So this is something Jesus said in Matthew 24 would happen before the end would come. And Paul is affirming prior to AD 70 that this gospel has gone into the whole world. And then Jesus says the end comes. But he's not talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the end of Judaism. He mentions the abomination of desolation that Daniel talked about. And then Luke, when Luke writes, Luke basically defines that abomination of desolation. says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, what were the saints supposed to do? Get out of Dodge. If you're listening to my words, when you see these things happen, get out of Dodge. Leave town because it's not going to be good. Jesus said this in this context. Learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, what do you know? You know that summer is near. That's a sign you can look for to show you that summer is near. When the fig tree's branch gets tender and puts forth its leaf, you know summer is near. So you too, he says, when you see all these things, what things? The things he's just talking about. He's talking to people and he says, when you see all these things, he's not expecting that these people are going to die and then in 2,000 years things are going to happen. He's talking to people and he says, when you see these things happening, you know that he's near right at the door. Truly I say to you, what does he say to him? This generation will not pass until all these things take place. This generation will not pass. Now who's standing there listening to Jesus would have said, always talking about something that's going to happen in 2,000 years. Nobody would have said that. Anybody standing there listening to Jesus would have said, Wow, everything he just told us is going to happen before about 40 years passes, because that's basically a biblical generation, 40 years. Jesus said this about 33 A.D., and Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70, so you do the math. Jesus was very clear about the time frame. So after providing multiple signs indicating the coming destruction of Jerusalem in a specific time frame of within that generation, Jesus then added a contrasting statement about the final judgment, saying this, of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So Jesus says, here's a bunch of signs you can look for for the destruction of Jerusalem, In the end of Judaism, he didn't say it just like that, but that's what it meant. Because when the temple was destroyed, so were the records of the priesthood and the lineage. And if you couldn't prove your lineage, you couldn't serve as a priest. You've got no temple, you've got no priesthood. Who can offer sacrifices? Nobody. Why is that? Because Jesus is the sacrifice. That's why the veil of the temple was torn in two. Showing that he, through his body, through his flesh, through his blood, he has brought us into the Holy of Holies. The real holy of holies. Not the one there in Jerusalem, but the real one. That one in Jerusalem was a shadow. Foreshadowing the reality that is salvation through Christ. Flavius Josephus, or if you prefer, Yosef ben Matiyahu, He was Jewish. He was born a Jew. He was raised up a Jew. He was a leader in the Jewish military. And he... When the Romans attacked, surrendered himself to them rather than fight because he believed that was the right thing to do at the time. While he was imprisoned after surrendering, he had a dream that Vespasian would become emperor of Rome and that happened. And somehow Vespasian heard about all this and he said, well, if that guy can dream dreams that come true, he's somebody special. And so Vespasian made Joseph or uh, Flavius Josephus... A historian and he wrote oh I meant to bring him in here I've got the volume set in my office he wrote prolifically and what he wrote is called the works of Flavius Josephus in the wars of the Jews that's in volume one book four chapters two through nine Josephus describes in detail what happened in Jerusalem when the Romans laid siege to it And Jesus said in Matthew 24, we didn't talk about it previously, but one of the things he said is there's going to be a tribulation unlike any tribulation that's ever been. It's going to be worse than any tribulation that's ever been. And there's never going to be another tribulation like it. And when you read what Flavius Josephus wrote about the destruction of Jerusalem, what was happening inside the city, you will agree. It's the most horrible thing you'll ever read. And this was God's judgment, I believe, on the Jews at that time. So we've got this account. Isn't it interesting that there is a man right there who is Jewish who can record this for us and his works remain with us to this day so we can see that everything Jesus said came to pass. As to the fulfillment of Jesus' statements regarding the unique tribulation of Jerusalem, you can see also, and I've got these two lessons down, Jerusalem, Jerusalem parts 1 and 2. These are sermons that I preached a couple of years ago and I just put this on here so you would know they are available. If you want to go... uh, see a couple of lessons about what Josephus said about the destruction of Jerusalem and how that fulfilled what Jesus said in Matthew 24. There they are. And you don't have to write them down now. You can get them from me later. Or just go to our website. They're on page 4 in the sermon section of our website. They're both there together. Number 4. Remember these are preliminary statements. I'm not trying to scare you. There's no statement in the New Testament specifically designed to instruct Christians how to exactly regard the nation of Israel. So, Are they to be considered the same as any other nation today? That's a question. Are they to be treated differently than any other nation? There is nothing specifically that tells us one way or the other. So let's talk about God's unique relationship with Israel. God alluded to his plan to save mankind in Genesis 3.15. Talking about the seed of woman. And to bring that seed to fruition, he called a man named Abraham in Genesis 12. So we go from Genesis 3, very early in the scriptures, to Genesis 12. He's introducing us to his plan to save humanity through one seed, that is Jesus Christ. God made specific promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And later he would say, your children are going to be like the the sand by the seashore. They're going to be like the stars in the heavens, so numerous they could never be counted. And also... Anybody who blesses your people, your offspring, I'm going to bless them. Anybody who curses your offspring, I'm going to curse them. These are promises God made and he repeated those promises through Isaac to Jacob. Remember we studied this, if you were in our Wednesday night class, uh, John did a great job talking about Uh, this blessing and how it came about. Very interesting situation. You can go back and study that yourself. But I just wanted you to see that this promise, or these promises God made to Abraham, he's continuing through Isaac to Jacob. And what was Jacob's name changed to? Israel. He became Israel. And so the promises are to Israel, the nation of Israel. And God gave Israel the law. He gave them the priesthood. He gave Israel the tabernacle. All those things, he gave them that. And the law was their schoolmaster, Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3. Their schoolmaster, their tutor, to bring them to Christ. So that when Christ came, Paul writes, you're no longer under the schoolmaster. All elements of Judaism were shadows of the reality that is Jesus and his church. You read this in the letter to the Hebrews. Everything God gave them. This was special. No other nation had these shadows, but they had them. And they were from God. Romans chapter 1 verse 16, what does it say? Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Because it's the power of God to salvation. For who? To everyone who believes. To the Jew first. To the Jew first. Also to the Greek. There's a special relationship that God had, and I believe still has to some degree with Israel. We'll talk more about that as we talk. Israel is the tree into which all faithful Gentiles are grafted. Paul uses this analogy in Romans chapter 11. He says, "There's a tree. <clears throat> Some branches of that tree, the natural branches were cut off. Why were they cut off? Unbelief. Natural branches of the olive tree were cut off because they failed to believe. So what happened? Other branches were grafted in. They're not part of that tree, but they were grafted in. Why? Because they believed. You and I are the branches that were grafted in. I'm not Jewish. You're not Jewish. Well, you might be here. Somebody that I don't know is Jewish. But as far as I know, we're all a bunch of Oaky Gentiles. And we've been grafted into this tree. But the tree started out as Israel. By the way... The tree didn't start out as all Israel, only Israelites who were faithful Israelites. Because what happened to an unfaithful Israelite? He's cut off. Salvation has always been by faith. The difference today is it's now in faith in Christ. So God created, God sustained, God's protected, he has preserved and he has blessed the world through Israel bringing Jesus to us through them. This was his plan, to save the world. John 3.16, what's it say? For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. But how did he give us his only begotten son? He gave us his only begotten son through Israel, the nation of Israel, that he created and he sustained through time. How many opportunities did the Israelites have to be wiped out? In fact, when you think about it, they were wiped out. Nebuchadnezzar came and carried them off into captivity. What happened? What happened? Seventy years later, just like God said, he brought them back. Who brought them back? Cyrus, Persian, heathen, pagan king, sent Israel back and paid for it. You read this in, in Nehemiah and Ezra, how this all came to pass, the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the walls. And when the people in the area complained about it, Cyrus said, all right, you pay for it. You're going to complain about these Israelites coming back to their homeland? You take your tax money and you support financially what they are doing. Don't mess with Cyrus. Because Cyrus was doing the will of God. Whether he knew it or not. He was doing the will of God. This fact, these facts are eternal and they are unchangeable. God has had a relationship with Israel. And it's just a fact. So what can we learn from David's regard for Saul? You might think, what in the world has David's regard for Saul got to do with anything? Well, let's let's take a look here. Saul, as God's anointed, was held in highest regard by David, even after Saul was rejected by God and had personally made two attempts on David's life. Remember this? Saul was faithless. God said, I've rejected him, going to get somebody else. And he sent Samuel to the house of Jesse whose youngest son was David, and he anointed David to be the next king. Saul's still king, but David's been anointed to be king. Saul's still king even though God has rejected him. This whole thing hasn't played out yet, but it would. And during the process, Saul made two direct attempts with a javelin to pin David's body to the wall, and he made other attempts to take David's life that were not so direct. So he wanted David dead. When David was presented with opportunities to kill Saul, and there were two of them, very, very—I mean, once he—he he was so close to Saul, he cut off part of his garment, and he showed that to him later. Hey, look, I could have killed you, but here's here's part of your garment to prove it. The other time he came into the camp at night, they were standing over Saul, and his the captain of his army said, "Kill him, kill him now!" And he said, "No, you don't lift up your hand against God's anointed and go away guiltless." So David had opportunities. And he never would do it because he said, who can stretch out his hand against God's anointed? There was something about that anointing. Following Saul's death, the men of Jabesh-Gilead treated the bodies of Saul and his sons with dignity. The Philistines had dragged their bodies to the city of Beth-Shan and nailed them to the wall. And the men of Jabesh-Gilead went and took their bodies down, brought them back, they burned them, and they buried the bones. They treated them with dignity and gave them a proper... uh, proper burial. When David found out about that, after David became king, he blessed them, said, blessed are you. Now remember, Saul was his enemy. Saul had been rejected by God, but because these guys showed kindness, even after death to one who was God's anointed, David said, blessed are you for doing that. David later killed a man who came into his presence and claimed he had killed Saul. And David asked, how is it that you were not afraid to stretch out your hand and destroy the Lord's anointed? David had him killed. Observations about this. David, men after God's own heart, so regarded the significance of the anointing of God that he would neither lift his hand against one so anointed nor tolerate anyone else doing so. And David's apparent conviction was that you cannot touch God's anointed even if he is rejected without touching God. I think there's something to be learned there. What about Abishag? How many of you know who Abishag is? No hands? Oh, Bob. Okay, see? Bob, he's on top of things. Abishag was a young woman chosen to lay with David in his old age to keep him warm. They put covers on him. They couldn't keep him warm. He's still freezing to death. So they got this young woman, Shunammite woman, she lay with him just to keep him warm. She was not his wife, not even a concubine. They never had intimate relations. That's all she did was lay with him to keep him warm. Well, prior to David's death, one of his sons by his wife Haggith presumed to make himself king. And he got a little entourage and made himself the king. And when David heard about that, he had Solomon anointed to be king, displacing Adonijah. And when Adonijah found out about that, he fled to the altar. And you'll read about this a couple places in Scripture. Grab hold of the horns of the altar because they think you can't kill somebody if he's holding on to the horns of the altar. But Solomon sent word to him, don't worry, I'm not going to kill you. You just go home, mind your manners. They were half-brothers after all. But when David died, Adonijah asked for Abishag. Remember, who was Abishag? Was she David's wife? No. Was she David's concubine? No. Did did she have intimate relations with David? No. All she did was lay with him to keep him warm in his old age. That's, That's who she was. That's what she did. But Adonijah asks for her and Solomon says, well, why don't you just ask for the kingdom as well? And he had Adonijah killed. So in the wisdom of Solomon, you can't touch Abishag without touching on the throne. There's an association there. David wouldn't lay a hand on Saul because there's an association between Saul and God. Saul is, is God's anointed. You're not going to lay a hand on Saul as God's anointed. Solomon says, you can't touch Abishak. You touch her. You're touching David. You're touching the throne. And this is not going to happen. So this is what we're reasoning. This is what I'm reasoning anyway. David, a man after God's own heart, understood the unique connection Saul had to God as his anointed, in spite of the fact that Saul had been rejected and replaced by David. Solomon, wisest man that ever lived, understood that Abishag, though not David's bride, still had a unique connection to David and thus had a connection to the throne of Israel. In light of these things, how could we deny that Israel remains uniquely connected to God? In some way, somehow, there's a connection. It's undeniable. He brought them into existence. He brought his son into the world through them. They still exist. How many people have tried to wipe the Jews out and they still exist? It makes you wonder why. Anti-Semitism, interesting phrase. Is there an equivalent phrase for any other ethnic group? I, I can't think of one. If you know one, I want to hear about it. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't racial slurs and derogatory terms. Uh, I mean, you just look at the relationship between Oklahoma and Texas. (laughs) Or you want to go deeper, you look at the relationship between OU fans and OSU fans. See, uh, we know, we know, people call each other names. But anti-Semitism, is there... A phrase like that for any other ethnic group. If you know one, I'd like to hear it from you because I I don't know of any other. Isn't that interesting that the Jews seem to be unique in this regard? Hated in that way. What other people have been so persecuted over the centuries? Can you think of any other group of people, an ethnic group, who have been persecuted like the Jews have been persecuted? Did these facts result from their connection to God and reveal a satanic desire to destroy them because of that connection? I'm asking the question. seems like there ought to be some reason why these things are so. The Jews still exist. Matter of fact, the Jews don't exist. What do they do everywhere they go? They thrive. They thrive everywhere they go. And they add to society. We must ask, for what reason would anyone make the destruction of the Jews a priority? All Arab nations want Israel to go away. It has been said, and I believe accurately so, if the Arab nations laid down their arms, there would be peace. If Israel laid down their arms, there would be no more Israel. And I think we're seeing that playing out before our eyes. That that part is true. So what of Israel today? I don't know of any compelling reason to conclude that God no longer keeps His promise to bless those who bless Israel and to curse those who curse them. I'm talking about blessing and cursing with a regard to their relationship with God. We see the connection there. It's unmistakable. The evidence from history is that God still keeps these promises. Those who've blessed Israel have been blessed and those who've cursed them have been cursed. I think that can be borne out pretty easily. Remember Jesus on the beach with Peter and John? They're talking and Jesus tells Peter, hey, this is what's going to happen to you in the future. And Peter says, well, well, okay, you told me what's going to happen to me. What about this guy? What about John? And Jesus says, if I want him to remain till I come, what's that to you? In other words, that's none of your business. <laughs> that's what I think he said. None of your business. What's God's relationship with Israel today? Well, maybe that's none of our business. Does he want him to hear the gospel? Absolutely. Does he want to obey the gospel? Absolutely. We have no doubt about that. Shouldn't have any doubt about it. But his relationship with them is his own. Jesus' focus, however is on the church and not any one nation, not even on Israel any longer. Jesus came to establish his church. We learned that from Matthew 16, 18 and the whole of the New Testament, really. Jesus is the shepherd. The church is his flock. He made this clear in John 10, 16, where he says, other sheep I have that are not of this fold. What do you mean by that? Gentiles, Okies. There's some Okies out there. 2,000 years ago, there's going to be a church in Choctaw. going to be talking about me, going to be serving me. They're not of this fold, the Jews, but I'm going to bring them in. We're going to be one flock and one shepherd, and Jesus is that shepherd. Jesus is the bridegroom. The church is his bride. Jesus is the head of the church. The church is his body. Jesus bought the church with his blood. It's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the world today. That's what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3. So the church is very unique, and the church is the focus of God. Here we go. It's not as though the word of God's failed. They're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But, and then he quotes scripture, through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it's not about, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. If you're in the church, you're a child of Abraham. God is telling us through his son's apostle Paul, as he writes this letter to the church at Rome. If you're a Christian, you're part of Israel. That tree, that olive tree, that's where he's talking about this. Israel was that tree. But those who did not believe were cut off. Those of other nations who did believe were grafted in. The tree still exists. And guess what? It's us. We're part of it. I love the nation of Israel. They have a great history. I I respect and admire them. I wish they would turn to Christ, which is exactly what Paul writes in these three chapters. Go to Romans. Read chapters 9, 10, and 11, and you'll get Paul's view on where God is with the nation of Israel today. Well, these things I hope have been beneficial to you. I know people have a lot of questions. Uh, I, I personally will continue to pray for Israel. I think as a nation we should support them because I don't want them to go away. How about you? I want them to stay and I believe God wants them to stay because they could have been gone a long time ago if he didn't. Are you an Elvis fan? Where'd that come from? Well, if you're an Elvis fan and you pass through Tupelo, Mississippi, what are you going to do? You're going to go to Elvis's house where he grew up. Why are you going to do that? Because you know that house is related to Elvis. I've got a couple of Coke cans somewhere. I don't know where they are since the move, but they're Coke cans that were given to me and Debbie by Garth Brooks. Now, he's just a country star. Debbie threw them in the trash can. So what are you doing? Get those out of there. This was back when he, before he was a big deal. And I said, he's going to be a big deal someday and you're going to have a Coke can that he handed you with his own hand and opened and gave. Wow, we still got those Coke cans. Why are they special? I mean, there's a million Coke cans in the world. Those are special because there's a connection to somebody who's different. I think it's easy to see Israel as a nation is unique in this world. And we ought to give some credence to that. So that's the lesson this morning. I I hope I didn't raise more questions than I answered. But one thing I hope that you saw is that the church is where you need to be today. If you're outside of Christ, you're outside that olive tree, you don't want to be cut off when the Lord comes back. So if you need anything, if there's anything we can help you with this morning, Bob's going to lead us in an invitation song. Let's all stand up and sing it and you just come let us know how we can help.